Welcome to Porch Stories. I'm Billy Bailey. I'm Larry Hayhee. And I'm Mallory Gibson. This week we interviewed Dr. Alex Colvin, Public Programs Curator for the Alabama Department of Archives and History. Billy was unable to join us this week, but Mr. Larry and I had a great conversation with Dr. Colvin. We discussed the strong nature of Creek society and the importance of the Creek mother and her side of the family's role in teaching their children how to be valuable members of the tribe. Uh, good afternoon. It's good to be here with you again. We're glad that uh, we're able to continue our excursion, shall we say, into Creek history. And uh, fortunately, we have a guest with us today, and I'll let Mallory do the introduction. So today we are with Dr. Alex Colvin. Dr. Colvin, can you kind of go into your background, your history, like where you're currently working, your job title today? Of course. Uh, so as you said, my name is Alex Colvin, and I am the Public Programs Curator here at the Alabama Department of Archives and History. And that job essentially just means I am in charge of all programming for our adult audience. So that's everyone who is college age or older. Uh, and I help organize and you know, execute the programming from our monthly Food for Thought lecture series to our annual symposia to other kind of special programming. I'm also on the exhibits team, so I help with doing research and writing for all of our in-house exhibits. And I also help out with our publications. So I've uh, worked with uh, my boss, Scotty Kirkland, to help produce uh, catalogs that go along with our exhibits, as well as journal articles for the Alabama Heritage Magazine and some other kind of in-house journals that we've created. So lots of different things going on here at the archives. And uh, something I love about this job is every day I do something a little bit different. Oh yeah, that's but cool. all about history and all about Alabama history. So how did you kind of get into history and like, was it in college or did you always know like through grade school you wanted to do something in history? I always loved history, but I'm not going to lie. I didn't actually know I wanted to do history until my senior year of high school. Partially it's because I didn't really know that you could do a job in history. I kind of thought it was a fun subject at school, but I didn't think through the fact that you could actually pursue it as a profession. Um, and so as I was thinking about college and going to college, I was with my parents in Boston and I was telling them all about the American Revolution. We would go on this tour, but then I would on the side tell them all these facts I was learning in high school. Uh, I was also afterwards saying, oh, you missed this. The tour guide didn't go over this. Let's talk about X. And my mom looked at me and said, Alex, why don't you want to be a historian? I said, that's an option. <laughs> and she said, of course it is. So that's how I knew that I wanted to pursue it in college. And so uh, I became history major. And then that's how it all went down. It's kind of how I started to know I wanted to be a historian. So where did you go for undergrad? I went to Samford University in Birmingham. Okay. And so I went there, and that's where I got my undergraduate degree. And my professor there, my uh, one of my advisors, Dr. Mayfield, kind of helped me figure out what kind of history I was interested in. So I, when I first entered and I was obsessed with European history. But then I kind of took his class and it was on Southern history. And so I got really more involved in U.S. history in general, Southern history in particular. And he's actually the one who first introduced me to Native American history because his class had a Native American unit in it. It also had a paper and he encouraged me to write about the Yamasee War. And that was really one of the first times that I had an in-depth look at what Native American history was like. 
And from there, I started to focus my interest in on that specifically Creek history, but Native American history in general. And so where did you see that transition into like generalized Native American history and then going into Creek history? Well, with the Yamasee War, I focus, of course, on the Yamasee and the South Carolinians who are fighting in that war, but the Creek are heavily involved in that colonial war. And so I kind of found myself leaning and what's going on with this group over here and reading more books. And, and I read a book uh, by Dr. Catherine Brand, Deerskins and Duffel Bags. And it's Deerskins and Duffels. And uh, she, as I was reading, I found like myself so interested in that form of history. And she was a professor at Auburn and she was taking graduate students. And so I decided I wanted to go learn from her about Creek history. And so I applied after I graduated from Sanford in 2012, I applied to Auburn uh, under Catherine Brond to work with her. And she is the person who accepted me at Auburn. And so from there, that is how I started to learn more and more specifically about Creeks. Um, and she's the one who helped guide me into my dissertation topic about the Tinsaw region and about the families who gathered there. And so you received your PhD from Auburn, right? I did, yes. So I went to Auburn in 2012. Uh, I was a direct track PhD student. So okay. what that means is you just go all the way through. And you take three years of coursework, you do your preliminary exams, you write your dissertation, and then you graduate with your PhD. So I got my master's uh, about halfway through. But uh, it was really about focusing on that dissertation and getting your PhD there. So um, I graduated from there in 2019, and that's when I started this job. Oh, great. yeah. It's great that you were able to come right from college with a PhD right into a job that's meaningful to get the history out. Yes, and that's, and that's been something specifically with Creek history that I have wanted to do is I wanted to make it more mainstream. Mm -hmm. I wanted people, and it's not just me, this is a large group of people in ethno history who want to teach people about Native American history and really emphasize it and bring it out to the general public mm -hmm. so that more and more people can learn about the importance of what Native American history means for the United mm -hmm. States, for world history, and why it should be significant for them to learn it. Yeah. I definitely think with this podcast, that was like always one of our main goals was to let the more of the Native American side come out throughout history. Like you always hear about Native Americans within history, but you always kind of hear it from like a European side, not really from the Native American side. So I feel like that's one of our biggest goals with this podcast is to kind of go through history and like, let's hear both sides and let's see... <laughs> Exactly. And, and I'll add to that is that I, you know, I've heard you uh, speak a couple of times. And that's what intrigued me and so glad you're able to join us today is that some of your perspective matches what I've seen and we've talked amongst ourselves about with the, the Creek perspective from the Creek side. You know, when you talk about and maybe getting into some of the stuff you'll be talking about in a little bit is the socialization, the upbringing, the raising of the Creek children in these mixed marriages. Yes, I think that's been one of the most important things I learned from Dr. Braun. So at each stage, I feel like I learned something about history and something important. But one thing that Dr. Braun really drove home for me is ethno history or the study of Native Americans 
should always come from the perspective of Native Americans. It should not be that it's how Europeans look at them. It's how would they have understood their history? How would they have understood the experiences happening to them? And it's hard because almost all of the written sources we have mm-hmm. don't come from the Native American perspective. Right. So you have to read against the sources. So you have to say, okay, this is what a European said, but where, what is their bias? What is their perspective in that source? And how do you get then to the other side and the other perspective of how they are interpreting what's happening to them? And I think that the Creek War is one of the best examples of how those perspectives are different, but also how they're competing, how not all Native Americans had the same perspective, how there were kind of a lot of things happening at that moment in history that can tell us about not just the significance of socialization or civilization policy to Native Americans, but how also the Native Americans in this region truly affected the region's history and Mm -hmm. kind of created in some ways the state of Alabama, Southern history as we know it. Right. Yeah, when I talk about socialization, I'm talking about the the individual growing up, learning who oh, yes. they are within the world, and and uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I've heard you say, and I agree wholeheartedly, that a person of uh, mixed families mm-hmm. in the Creek society, they grew up Creek. Yes, they are Creek. There was no a very little concept of being another race. And I think that's an important distinction to know and look at in, you know, some of these action and activities around. And it's very difficult what we're trying to do because obviously history is recorded mostly by Europeans. And they're recorded their actions and activities and maybe as it relates to their interactions with the Indians and not the the creek or the tribal history themselves and trying to garner that bit of knowledge out of those sources can be difficult. It is. And another great point that you have, you were bringing up with how these are sources written by Europeans, even our notion of, people and knowing that people are of mixed ancestry is because that mattered to Europeans. Mm -hmm. So Europeans note that because they cared that they had a European father or a European grandfather on the Creek side. It did not matter. Exactly. If their mother was Creek, they were Creek hands down. No questions about Mm -hmm. it. And of course, having European fathers in some ways, you know, affected their, Upbringing, meaning that a European father might have taught them how to speak English or French or Spanish. A European father may also have, you know, encouraged them to get involved in the trade or get involved in uh, certain education activities. But it didn't necessarily mean that the individual themselves saw themselves as any different than their cousins or their, you know, other clan members who maybe didn't have mixed ancestry. Right. Uh, And... One of the things in, in anthropology that I learned years ago is kind of that concept of worldview. Mm-hmm. And that your language expresses your worldview. Well, these people grew up speaking Creek. Mm-hmm. And that being able to speak Creek and understand using those words 
define their worldview, which was a Creek world. Mm -hmm. And granted, having a uh, a European father, yeah, they could gain some skills, like you say, uh, English. The father in order to communicate would teach them some English. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they were working as a trader, they may teach them some of those skills to try to like everybody wants their child to grow up to be able to take care of themselves mm-hmm. and, and learn the skill and that's what it is is a skill set to uh, take care of their family exactly and that's another question I always get from people when I explain and I'm sure in previous podcasts mm-hmm. you might have talked about how the the creek were matrilineal so how mothers were uh, the ones who were responsible for raising the children and matrilineal families were the ones who really kind of helped educate and raise the children. Uncles took care of nephews, so on and so forth. Frequently I get asked this question though of, well, do their fathers not care? Do their fathers not love them? And even if your father was a Creek man, he loved and cared for you. He maybe taught you things. It just was a different type of responsibility to you than the way Europeans and their fathers were responsibility. So what I mean by that is a biological father in Creek society is how Europeans would have understood an uncle. Mm -hmm. He loves you. He gives you gifts, maybe teaches you a few things. But at the end of the day, the legacy that you're carrying on is your maternal uncle's legacy and your maternal family's legacy. As opposed to in European society, the father gives to the son, and the son gives to his son, and so on and so forth. And here it's the uncle gives to the nephew, the nephew gives to their nephew, and so on and so forth. So that's, it's not necessarily that even the concept of having a father teach you something, or a father care about you. It wasn't a foreign concept to Creeks. They, they had that relationship. It's just what the emphasis of that relationship was on their day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I, you know, that kind of hit home to is reading, you know, some of those chronicles of Benjamin Hawkins and her, the one where the the Creek uh, mother came in and uh, trying to make an arrangement between her daughter and Benjamin Hawkins, and uh, I guess Benjamin Hawkins was intrigued. At least he discussed it and didn't. Send her out the door. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he came to the said, okay, if, if I do this, then I will be the father as a European father to the children of this union. And she said, no deal, and walked out. Exactly. That's is that even when Europeans are being, you know, married into these Creek families, they are not taking control of them. That's the main difference is uh, between what would happen if they if they had a European wife. So if a you know if a European man and European wife are married, he has complete control over everything. Even her, she's sometimes seen as property just as much as her children are. But in this situation, the Creek mothers never lose control. Right. And so if a European father's coming in, if he's teaching something, it's always at the you know permission of the mother of how much he is involved in his child's life and how much um, influence that he may have over his child's life. And so when did we start to see like a change in like the matrilineal to then to the patrilineal side? Some would argue that it's 
some would argue that it maybe never goes away. And some would argue that probably I would start to see a shift happening in, in earnest, probably after Indian removal. But you do start to see kind of pushes towards patrilineal right before the Creek War. So one of the issues you have before the Creek War is that you start seeing, especially the United States, pressuring the Creek to turn to patrilineal and push them to change that kind of part of socialization, that part of inheritance, that question of who is in control. They want it to go from the women and the maternal family to it being a nuclear family. So not not that extended family, no clans, nuclear family, and the man is in charge. And they, they want to push towards that. But the real thing is that even if that's what the United States wants, it's not how people are working on an individual level. Mm-hmm. Um, they can try to pressure them and they can try to force it. But even people who are in every other sense following along the United States, they don't necessarily fall to that patrilineal system. Mm-hmm. They still work in a matrilineal way. Yeah, that makes sense because it's like it's what they were taught from the childhood. You can't really do something you were never taught as a child exactly. or as a young adult. Well, you know, and I think whenever, too, you look at the, the clan system where the person's clan membership is made up from their mother, mm-hmm. their mother's side, and that defines that group of relatives. As long as you have that notion and idea of this set of group relatives, and these are the ones that are most important to you, you're not going to entirely go to a patrilineal mm-hmm. way of thinking because you've always got that as a major focus. And that's, you still see people in the Tinsaw who, even after the Creek War, in their wills that they leave behind, as they're leaving their property to people, they're putting their nephews as the executor of their will. And they're saying in in one will, it just says, you know how I want it handled, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? It's like, we've discussed Mm -hmm. this. You handle it the way we talked about. And then in the will, setting aside their wife's property separate, making that clear. So even after the Creek War, you have uh, people who seemingly in every other way are, quote, living like Europeans. They're still seeing themselves in a matrilineal order. Mm. Mm. Well, that's, you know, that's going back to what I, I call, you know, like to think of as that world view mm-hmm. that, yeah, they can wear the accoutrements of the Euro- European farmer. Yes, they can do raise horses, cattle, you know, stock, but their internal idea of who they are is still Creek. And that remains. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now we've briefly mentioned trade, but how did trade affect the lifestyle within the Creek towns? That is a great question because trade itself, I mean, at this point in the setting the scene for the Creek War, at this point, they've been trading for almost 200 years, right? So it, it, it's been happening gradually over a long period of time where things are starting to change and be adopted. Some things changed and, and didn't really change back. So things like metal tools, 
So we've, we were talking about, you know, that there's these things like metal axes, needles, thimbles, things like that that get introduced in that replace previous uh, tools because they were more efficient, maybe that they worked better. Um, and made so life easier. They made life easier. And so some things change kind of permanently like that. That doesn't necessarily change what people are doing in the towns. It just means the tools themselves are changing. Some things do start to shift how people are living their life. Things like uh, horses are being brought in. And that changes how you have transportation. People generally are pretty okay with horses. They, they, they thought that they were a great way to get around. Um, so you don't see people necessarily being upset about horses coming in. Other livestock, we can talk about that in a moment if we want to when we get more about the causes of the Creek War. Other livestock, it's kind of a hit or miss about whether or not people like it or not. Horses generally are kind of adopted into Native American lifestyle, but they radically change how you can get around. Other things like, you know, clothing is brought in and it does um, affect maybe what they're wearing, but it doesn't really affect how they dress. And what I mean by that is you'll see both in the McKinney and Hall portraits are a great example of this. Most Native Americans across the board, not just Creek, are taking these trade goods like cotton cloth or other kind of fabrics and they are incorporating them into their own fashion sense. So they're not getting them and then looking like Europeans. Mm -hmm. They're taking them and fashioning them into cloaks mm -hmm. or leggings or other things like that. And they're kind of bringing them all together, but they're not just taking them wholesale. So it creates this new type of fashion and a way to kind of show off your connection to the trade. Mm -hmm. So people are wearing glass beads and silver trinkets and these very intense woolen fabrics, and they're using them as a sense of adornment. And what it's saying is as you're walking up, people know immediately that person mm -hmm. is connected to trade. And it makes you have maybe a, a sense of status yeah. in yeah. Creek society. Yeah. See, I've always been interested in the Native, I guess, fashion, we'll say. But um, my background, I've done Native American pageants since I was five, six years old. So with that, you know, you dress the part. And I, as a young person, I was always like, it kind of looks like we're dressed like European style. But like, you know, the older I got, I had seen like, oh, no, you know, we might have adopted what they have worn in the 1700, 1800, like based from the trade, you know, we weren't wearing the deer skin or butt skin for these pageants, but we were wearing like the calico fabric, the yes. aprons, but we were, it may have been seen to the outsiders as like, this is more European style, but knowing the history behind it, it is like just that introduction to the trade. It is. And, and it's taking that trade and making it into your own thing. Mm -hmm. And so, so much, and, and what kind of historians call this is biculturalism. And so what they mean by that is saying, okay, you're taking a bit from this culture and taking a bit from this culture and you're bringing them together to create almost a new cultural mm -hmm. sense. And so it's taking European fabrics, but fashioning them in a native way to create a unique sort of fashion sense that defines that era. Mm -hmm. And it's not taking and saying, I'm going to wear, most men did not want to wear European trousers. <laughs> they still preferred leggings. And so you'll see leggings, maybe moccasins, and then a, like a cotton shirt, though, and then like an intense woolen uh, cloak that is fashioned with beadwork. 
that's done by Creek women. And, and so you'll have this wonderful mixture of fabrics and style that becomes inherently Creek. Mm-hmm. And you, it, it's its own way kind of taking the trade and making it your own. You see that on the day-to-day things like that, it's that one of the major changes is that people are starting to get things, not just what they need, but things that they want. Um, so they're getting things like this clothing or metal goods. They're getting things like rum or guns. And it's not necessarily that these things completely, you know, are necessary to their survival. They can survive without these things in the trade, but they want them. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the biggest changes in how trade affects the lifestyle of each town on a day-to-day basis for those 200 years that it's evolving is that people have to now create, Creeks have to create um, their own kind of industry to pay for those goods. And the way they do that is through the deerskin trade. And so prior to Europeans arriving, deerskin and, and, and hunting was a way to supplement their food. So you hunted so you could have meat, you would supplement your, you know, corn, beans, and squash with deer meat, bear meat, squirrel, fill in the blank of whatever you could find. And it was a way, a source of protein, but it wasn't necessary they could survive off of the things that they grew. They were self, each town was self-sufficient. And then they would use skins for clothing. After Europeans arrive and the trade comes, hunting deer becomes almost an industry because Europeans want deer skin. And that's the thing that Native Americans can trade for these things that they want. And so you see an increase of hunting, decrease in some deer populations, kind of the focus of the economy starts to trend towards that trade economy. Not everything, though. They are still planting corn. They're still planting beans and squash. They're still doing their ceremonies. So things like that don't change. But Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest changes that trade does is kind of to refocus hunting as a kind of part of the economy instead of just a way to supplement Things, it's now, or, or even a spiritual moment, it's now a part of their economy to get that trade. So for most of the history of trade in Native America, that is one of the biggest effects to the day-to-day life. And Until, that's one of the things that we had, had heard previously, and I think uh, Dr. Nelson mentioned it with the Mississippian, that you know, the Greeks have been trading for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Trade is not a new concept. Mm-hmm. It's just, I guess, like you were saying, the magnitude of it, that it now became much more important. Because mm-hmm. listening to you talk, I was thinking, you know, in the Mississippian period, you see conch shells moving mm-hmm. from the coast up into the interior. That was part of the trade items. Yes. What went the other way for the the conch shells, you know, of course, it was an exchange of something. Mm-hmm. And it was something that could have been provided in the interior that they didn't find on the coast. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It could have been maybe some sort of trees to make a canoe. It could have been some clay for pottery. It could mm. have been a pot that was actually created that was sent back down. It could have been different things that were trading. It was also a much more equal trade. 
in the fact that they were trading things and and getting this, but it was not it was not the central part of their economy. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's with Europeans, it started to become a central part because people wanted these things. And the price of these things was you want a gun that's fifty deerskins. Mm-hmm. And that that's a lot. That's yeah. a lot of deerskins to trade in for that. And if you want these things, you're starting to have to produce a lot more to get them. Mm-hmm. And that hurts the deer population. That also means that sometimes you start getting indebted to the traders. Mm-hmm. And debt becomes one of the kind of downsides of trade. We always have to be careful when looking at this to not get teleological. That's mm-hmm. a fancy history word that just means not using what we know in the present and applying it to the past. Meaning in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, they don't know that Indian removal is going to happen. They don't know the Creek War is going to happen. They they had no knowledge of the things that we know today. Mm-hmm. But debt is something that they were always wary of because once you start getting too indebted, once a town starts becoming too indebted to European traders, then you have to think of something that's going to appease that debt. And what Europeans increasingly start to want is land. Mm -hmm. And so for a while, you have the trade is a mutually beneficial thing. You know, the Native Americans are getting what they want. Europeans are getting protection and aid and an ally Um, in that kind of early colonial period. But once you have the Seven Years' War, and that, or the French and Indian War, as it's often called here, two out of the three major colonial powers are ousted. So France and Spain, who were very big in this area for the creek, they are out, and it's just the British who are left. And in the British, you have, you know, the British, aka those who are back in England and people who are kind of more loyal to the crown and you have kind of royal appointees coming in and then you have the British colonists and I point out they're two different things because they start to have two very different kind of objectives the royal appointees want to maintain peace they know they cannot fight the Creek and the Cherokee and the Choctaw and the Chickasaw and the Shawnee and the and on they, they know they don't have the resources to have an all-out war with Native Americans so they create a proclamation line. And that proclamation line is, you can't go past here. And that's to the colonists saying, you cannot go past here. Don't try. Don't do it. Colonists are very upset by that because what colonists want is they want to go past there. They want the land. They want the land. And so you have two different things. The British who want to keep maintaining good relations and who I'll call the British, meaning those who are in England and with the crown. And then you have colonists who want the land. And that's where you start to see tension rising prior to the American Revolution, is these two people who are interacting with Native Americans, but who have two different objectives. And the colonists are pressuring royal appointees, like, we want, like, we signed this treaty with this one town, and they paid their debt by giving us land. And so the British royal appointees are having to do that that careful balance of not making creeks mad. (laughs) but not making the colonists mad and trying to negotiate. So you have like the Treaty of Augusta and you have, you know, people coming together and arguing with this. You have the Oconee Wars happening. And all of this is about a treaty that was made between Georgia colonists and a few Creek towns to get to hand over land and whether or not they should be doing that and whether or not that is 
a part of this? Is that something that Georgia does or is that something the Crown does? Is that something that these towns are allowed to do or do all the towns have to agree mm-hmm. to give up land? So you have on two sides of this question, people questioning who has the authority to make these decisions and trade is at the center of it, that they're indebted. So they have to do something. Land is the easiest thing to sign over to appease that debt. But who gets to make that decision over what land is given when? Mm-hmm. And so that's where you start to see a lot of tension rising, both in within Creek territory over who gets to sign these treaties. And then in between the British and the colonists over who gets to sign these treaties. And, um, that's where you start to see kind of like it spiraling from there. And that then goes, leads into what happens when the United States becomes a thing in the 1780s is that same question keeps cropping up. Is there like any records or I know it kind of like leads you to think this, or at least like when you're talking, I'm thinking like, Hmm, this doesn't add up. But do you think the price of deer skin kept going up because they realized they wanted land or, or do you think it was like maybe because British was taxing colonists? Like, do you think it both could fit, play a little role in it? Or do you think it was like the pure, let's manipulate to get land? It, it, it was less that it's hard because there's also, there's layers to mm-hmm. trade, right? So you have individual traders who maybe weren't trying to manipulate one way or the other. The people who were living in the towns may have been married to a Creek woman who in some ways viewed the Creek as their family. Um, so you have people on that level who may not be trying to cheat people out, but it's just a part of the business. You have maybe the colonists in general, so colonial governments. Um, so meaning like the government of the colony of Georgia, not the crown, who definitely wants the land and is, and is trying to figure out any way that they can get the land. Um, and you have people who are, um, I hate using the word settler because it makes it sound like the land needed to be settled and people were living on the land. But uh, to try to come up with a, it's hard to come up with lack of a better word, word. lack of a better (laughs) word. Georgians who wanted to keep expanding westward, um, who wanted to get that land because they wanted their own farm or they wanted this, they wanted to get more acres. They also wanted to go. So you have these kind of competing interests. Certainly some people probably did use the trade, and specifically, they may have used things like a desire for rum or a desire for guns or some of those more expensive items to try to get people indebted to do it. And there, there is, that is definitely a case of trying to manipulate the trade to do that. I think there's also people who were trying to trade because that was their livelihood and they weren't necessarily trying to entrap Creek people. And I think it's kind of like a mixture of two. I don't think prices were necessarily increasing. I think that it's much like how capitalism is today. Sometimes Mm -hmm. things were inflated. Sometimes they were less. A real problem that starts happening near the end of the 18th century is that deer skins are no longer fashionable in Europe. Mm -hmm. And so the whole reason of why they wanted deer skins is that people liked buckskin trousers and they liked beaver hats and they liked things like that. And it was very fashionable in Europe, but those things start to change. And so the demand for deerskins also becomes not as high in Europe or other places. So there's lots of things happening around the time of the American revolution that is affecting how the deerskin trade is working and operating and how all that is, you know, handling itself. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, definitely. 
I guess I, I was kind of going with that question was like, you know, you said the price of one gum would be 50 deer skin. I guess who was setting that price? Was it individually like each mm-hmm. trader or? That was, there was kind of a, kind of a trade overall and like trading companies. And so each trader was working for a trading company. And sometimes those were working officially under the crown. Sometimes, uh, mostly they were working officially under the crown. So they were having a license. They had to be licensed by the crown. And kind of all these kind of, there's a whole jumble of bureaucracy and especially with royal appointment, things like, like the, the the companies themselves are setting the prices for things. And so okay. traders are going in and trading and then reporting back to the company and then getting their cut and everything like mm-hmm. that. So... That's kind of how things are being priced out. And it's also whatever they're bringing, how rare is what they're bringing, how expensive is what they're bringing, you know, different things like that. And sometimes there could be a trade where maybe it's not just deer skins. Maybe they have something that else that the Europeans would want and you could negotiate with that. There were times that women could give corn for something they wanted, especially if they're going to a town or a fort where they need food, they could say, I'll give you this corn for that thing there. And they'd be like, I'm sure. And they could make a trade, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and But for traders themselves, they're working for a company. And like this question kind of just popped in my head, but did we see like the introduction of money, like actual currency in the Native American side, or was it just strictly trade? At this time, it's trade more so than money. It's later on, you could start seeing more of introduction of money or that kind of notion into it. But in the early time, it, it, it is a more of a trade. Thank you for listening to Porch Stories. This interview with Dr. Alex Colvin was the first of a three-part mini-series. Part two and three are also available now. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe.